0: Policy is not self-executing. Something we used to say back in the Obama White House is like, you know, you can write the, the greatest executive order and all the agencies can slow walk and ignore it. So you better get the buy-in, find the exemplars, figure out ways that you're gonna organically amplify great people and efforts, and use that as a way to drive policy. This is All Quiet on the Second Front.
1: A podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Got a little bit of royalty with us, so we're pretty excited to... Uh, Nick Sinai, good friend, uh, I think a huge friend to pretty much everybody in the defense innovation community. Nick has been trailblazing in a lot of different verticals to help create the pathways, the programs, and the policies to enable a lot of the stuff we talk about to actually become real. So, Nick, thanks thanks a ton for making time to, uh, to come share some thoughts with us, brother.
0: Yeah, Tyler, it's so much fun uh, to be with you. Uh, i've I've failed in 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 government, in academia, and in in industry. So you know, hopefully this will be fun. the trifecta.
1: yeah. So I think, like I said, I think folks, if I have a good understanding of who you are, I'd love to to give them the the quick, you know, one two minute kind of over the world. Who's Nick? A little bit of your career and what you're working on now,
0: yeah. So I started a. Uh, uh, coming out of college, management consulting, business school, was doing venture capital for almost five years. And I was on my uh, honeymoon. I opened up the the newspaper first day in Italy. Uh, you know, you just get off that that red eye and you see Lehman Brothers goes bust. The only problem is I I was working at Lehman Brothers, the venture capital arm. And so I turned to my wife. I was like, Honey, you know, you thought you married a venture capitalist, not so much. Uh, but let's just go enjoy the honeymoon for for a couple of weeks. And then when we come back, we'll we'll figure this out. And you know, on that honeymoon, I was like, you know what? I want to go into public service. I had been a, a, a White House intern when I was 20. I uh, wanted to get back into government or public service at some point in my career. And I wasn't quite sure how that was going to work. And here was the universe showing me that I was going to be unemployed. And with just great naivete, I said, hey, uh, I'm going to go get a job in the Obama administration. Not realizing that you had eight years of professional DC waiting for for a Democratic administration, or that uh, you know being a venture capitalist, you know being an associate and, and and VP at a at VC firms in Boston doesn't you know that and a couple bucks will will get you half half a cup of coffee uh, like it doesn't mean much in DC. And so I was just really naive as I as I started to interview and try and get get jobs. Eventually, I got hired at the FCC as part of the National Broadband Plan, and then got hired in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, spent four years there, uh, ended up as a U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer, which impressed my mother to no end, but did not impress my wife because it did not come with a raise. And uh, yeah, I I loved being middle management in the Lesser Policy Council inside the presidency. It was just, just tremendous fun, the people, the mission, the important policy issues we were working on. And uh, you know, I left at the very end of 2014 and signed up with Insight Partners. Insight's a large venture capital and private equity firm. But I also wanted to find a way to give back, so I started as a fellow and then became adjunct faculty at Harvard Kennedy School. That's awesome. I think it's important to uh, to note that while
1: you were starting the honeymoon, saw it had collapsed, still had the integrity to turn and tell her. I think I would have just closed that newspaper and been like. Let's go see what's going on in the Amalfi Coast today, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so huge career, right? Bunch of interesting spots you've seen it from, right? At the capital table, you know, inside sort of the government looking at the policy, writing the policy, and then now again sort of back out with a really interesting sort of diverse portfolio. Right, I'll start sort of kind of at the macro level as you're seeing markets change, the cost of capital go up, coming off the heels of what was a a relatively wild kind of three years of fundraising and valuations and money was just seemingly free. We're now in a spot where capital is getting harder for companies to go get. We're seeing different sort of expectations at that sort of operating team level for the company. And I'll juxtapose that with you know, I always sort of say tongue in cheek, like defense is the new crypto. Everybody's coming into it. You know, you've got firm campaigns on it. What are you seeing today? But how and also sort of over those that year and a half, Like, what's that change looked like? As you see today, the current state, where do you sort of think looking forward? Are you optimistic? Um, and then we'll move into what advice are you giving to operating teams who are thinking about raising, who have
0: just raised, kind of in these market conditions. Yeah, so 2023 is very different from 2021, right? So the 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 pace at which capital is being deployed, the prices, all of that uh, was just it was moving so much more quickly. There is a, a higher bar, and just just uh, fewer fewer investments and checks being written. We're still investing. Uh, most other firms are still investing, but it, it, it is a question of, of pace, frankly. And so that's just the way, at the, and that's, that's driven in part by, by limited partners as well, who, who are more cautious on, on the next fundraise and, and the next fund, right? Um, so that kind of drives GP dynamics. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see the fact that, that national security has become a segment of venture capital and private equity. I mean, it always has, has been a private equity segment. You think of something like Carlisle back in the day, pioneering, but really as a, as a venture segment, um, it, it's taken off considerably in the last uh, five to 10 years, right? And I think that's a really positive thing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be on the board of Hawkeye 360, uh, Rebellion Defense, Shift 5, and Leo Labs. So, uh, four really great companies. Uh, but I got to tell you, you know, it's hard building these businesses. And I give just tremendous credit to the entrepreneurs who are, you know, seeing the, the say do gap of the Department of Defense, right? Which has a bunch of really great intentions and is, is making policy and acquisition and other changes, but maybe not fast enough. Right. And so, uh, when you combine that with the, the, the focus now, from boards of directors is very much on efficient growth these are venture backed companies not just the ones that we've funded but but all of the defense or national security dual use or or venture backed companies you know they're all oriented around hyper growth or ambitious growth so you, you know it you, it's hard sometimes to cut to profitability so you really have to go from you know growth at all costs to more efficient growth and and you know efficient growth is is the is the name of the game. And, and that's something that we're working with all of our operators, all of our, our management teams on, as as other uh venture firm firms are. And you know, the Defense Department has been they're trying to incorporate commercial tech more. And, and and you know, a lot of this goes back to uh Secretary Ash Carter and the the start of DIU and DDS and the Defense Innovation Board. And it's been nice to see some continued investment in the space. From policy changes, but you know, just being totally candid, I worry that we're going to be set up for a bit of a bruising here, where we've we've raised a lot of money as an industry, uh, deployed a lot of money, and and yet uh, DOD is just slower on commercial adoption at scale, right? And so, what what we're really talking about is how do companies become the next SpaceX or Palantir, right? And and you know, how do we start? Buying from the programmatic side, not the R and D or uh, science and technology side.
1: Yeah, I think there's so two parts in there that I think are really important for for folks to think about. One is is that really, and it might have felt sudden to folks, but sort of that transition from growth at all costs to efficient growth, and sort of bookend that with the challenges around crossing the chasm from. You know, potentially large dollar R and D, which, for all intents and purposes, is still probably an You know, it's not not something I'd necessarily book as subscription revenue yet. Into that sort of recurring, recurring kind of production grade contract, right? Well, I hear one thing in there is that hey, operating teams, you know, management teams. Like the blocking and tackling is the sexy part now. Like that's what's going to not only enable you to push through sort of market conditions and a challenging customer, but it's going to be table six now. We're not going to wave the hand and say, hey, defense is hard. It's an annoying customer. You know, we'll cut you a ton of slack. On the other side, it's a, you know, who in DOD and, you know, maybe it's Doug coming in or maybe it's the next sort of segment, who owns sort of the, the rallying cry into action, right? Because you see the signal coming from the department. I think they say a lot of the right words, right? I heard you sort of alluding to the complexity of it, right? I think they probably over-signaled a little bit. And It's resulted in industry maybe over-investing. What's that look like? What are, how, do we, how do we get through that? right? Is that something DIU at a sec def level? Is that something that, you know, whatever the, the new USD for tech, um, whatever that sort of ends up looking like, you know, is it a third stool to the RE, A and S kind of leg? Um, what's the answer there or what is an approach there?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Tyler. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about Doug back and 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 the elevation of of DIU to report to SecDef. That was one of our recommendations in the Atlantic Council's Defense Innovation Scaling uh, Commission. I'm a commissioner there along with uh, Secretary Esper, Secretary James. Uh, and that was open. an
1: awesome commission. So, if folks listening have not read that and gone and taken a look at that. That was. Arguably, one of the most successful sort of think tank commissions I've seen, where things actually resulted in policy changes.
0: Well, maybe we just got lucky, uh, but it was it was, and it's not over yet. We we have a, a final report coming out uh, this fall, so there's there's still a chance to to uh, continue to evolve on our on our recommendations. But a big piece of it was focused on the program executive offices, the PEOS, the programs. Right when you think about, uh, you know, the F twenty two or the you know, any program really, but, the, um, just for, for your, for your listeners, the programs are where the real money is. Um, and, and that's where the recurring money is. And we have these existing structures, uh, where they buy technology for a program rather than kind of cross platform. So one of the things that we, that we recommended was focused on, you know, can we get portfolios of capabilities? Because if a, if a particular software or technology is useful, for one platform, maybe it's also useful for another platform. You could think about something like AI or autonomy or cyber, for example. You could say, well, why would that be limited to a certain type of aircraft or a certain type of tank or a certain type of targeting system or, or, or what have you? Like why why would that technology actually uh be able to scale uh more broadly? And so that w- that was one one piece of it. Um, and something that I think uh DOD ought to focus on is how do you get the the programs and the PEOS less constrained, less micromanaged, and and involved in in adopting commercial technology earlier, so that it's the, because otherwise all the all the good work that the S and T and R and D and and all these kind of uh, innovation groups and and sometimes it's quite large dollars, but if they're doing those things and it's not connected to to the programs, then it's not going to help venture back companies. Who are excited to get some of those SBIRs or other kinds of R and D money. But then when they actually try and get recurring production money, they're stuck. And I, that's one of the things that DIU, uh, has, has some track record of success. Um, so just to give one example, we're investors in a company called Record Future. Record Future does cyber threat intelligence. Now they, they got a prototype OTA, uh, other transaction authority, um, with, uh, US Cyber Command via DIU. And after a year, we're able to transition to, and this is all kind of in the public record, transition to a $50 million five-year uh, production OTA. And so it's the first time that Cyber Command, as a combat command, had had actually done a production OTA, certainly with, a, with any company, but much less a venture-backed company. And that was a real mark of success for Recorded Future sure. as this market, right? And to say, hey, we're going to you know, use this cyber threat intelligence product uh, and capability from this company based up in Boston area, right? So, you know, that's that's the kind of thing I want to see more of, frankly.
1: So when you look at that and you think about, and I agree with Paul Hartley, right? I don't want to break down or unshackle those p s. So they can get earlier, have a little bit more fiscal flexibility. You know, thinking about kind of enabling them to buy better, maybe buy smarter, how are we looking at like interoperability? So we avoid the problem where, you know, three PEOs go to sometimes the same prime contractor, sometimes three different prime contractors, and we end up with platforms that can't communicate, that can't share information. And It's like a three 9-11 commission sort of data sharing ontology. It's just on a billion dollar platform instead of in an Intel community, right? How, how do we not do that? What does that look like? And where, where can folks, you know, put effort and thinking around, right? Like, is it supporting Atlanta council commissions like that? Is it the stuff like Jane Lee and the team are working on a rebellion with the software defense coalition, which we were one of the first five signatories here at second front. Um, What does that look like? And how do we start to, to not just get folks able to buy earlier and maybe buy smarter but we sort of take that portfolio approach you're talking about, and we take it below the logo and start thinking about like technical interoperability.
0: Yeah. So I, I love the uh, data decree that uh, Deputy Secretary Kath Hicks came out with. The question is, are we actually living up to those uh, as a department? Uh, and I, I would argue I, I don't see enough of that being really adopted. And so, uh, you know, there's this, there's this really so for those of you who are less familiar with them, it basically called for for more openness and and APIs, those kinds of interfaces uh to, to help free the data from from legacy systems and and to promote more modular system architectures, right? Uh so it's a great set of things. I had the great fortune of working on on open data back in the Obama administration and so I was around when we were you know setting up the the idea of chief data officers in in federal government and this idea of, of interoperability and APIs and thinking about these things from the beginning of a system or 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 a, a capability right rather than hey at the end because that was what one of the challenges we had on the open data side was hey now we want to free some stuff but we have PII mixed in and like how are we going to make data you know available to the public, but we have to kind of go back and remediate a bunch of things. so if you can if you can think about apis and and interoperability earlier in the r and d phase and certainly you know as things transition into programs, so that we're able to leverage the data from one system to another, And I'll just tell you a quick story. i I had the the great privilege uh, of traveling in the Sencom AOR. So General Carilla uh, invited five of us to, Basically, tour the AOR, and it was it was great fun for for me, and 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 eye opening, and and humbling, and awesome to see all these service members who I who I got to see in various places. So we were in Bahrain and Qatar and Iraq and Kuwait and and so forth. And so just seeing the way things work in the field is so so illuminating. And you could see that uh, systems don't necessarily connect in an operations floor, and you have to have people kind of yelling over the operations for or via chat or, you know, picking up the phone and calling to de-conflict those kinds of things. And so, you know, we, we have kind of swivel interoperability. Uh, we, we have phone interoperability. Good way a to chat. describe
1: it. I like swivel interoperability.
0: We've got a lot of chat interoperability, right? So you could see, and and look, there, there's some some real value to that, right? You can see see, you know, on an operations floor, how they're using chat effectively. Uh, but you know, you could also say, "Well, hmm, maybe some of this data could actually move from one system to another so that they don't have to uh, uh, speak it or 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 type it in all the time, right? so the the opportunities to to uh, tie systems together from the administrative to the targeting, you could you could see firsthand. And it was just a real honor to kind of go, you know, into an AOR and spend spend time spend time with folks. but it it reinforced. For me, that you know, policy is not self-executing. Something we used to say back in in the Obama White House is like, you know, you can write the the greatest executive order, and all of the agencies can slow walk and, and ignore it. So you better you better get the buy-in, find the exemplars, you know, figure out ways that you're going to uh, organically uh, amplify, you know, great people and efforts, and use that as 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 a way to drive policy. Uh, because sometimes people are like, oh, well, we're going to write the policy and then the government's magically going to change. And so, well, they could also just ignore those words on the paper. And so back to those data decrees, uh, I think those those were great. And so I want to find ways to continue to drive those uh, so that we are uh, really freeing the data uh, within the defense community, that we are um, letting uh, programs try and buy technology uh, in smaller pieces and and being able to swap things that work and things things that don't uh, and ultimately continuing to focus on commercial adoption. I think that's the thing that if 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 you I can kind of get on my soapbox for two seconds is we kind of get into this difference between let me give a bunch of requirements to the prime and have them build it versus a commercial technology which may come from a company that is focused on national security. it may have deep DoD DNA and some of the CEOs or entrepreneurs may, may actually have, have, you know, served in uniform for 10 or 15 years, but fundamentally is building a product that is trying to serve multiple customers rather than just working on the requirements that you gave them. Right. And that, that distinction, I don't think is always fully appreciated. If I can be kind in the defense department, uh, between what commercial really means and what venture-backed commercial companies really look like because they have the talent density, the product velocity, they're designed to scale rather than just fulfill requirements. So it's, uh, it's almost like,
1: you know, it's Spider-Man meme where they actually did the live one in the movie, right? Where all Spider-Men are just pointing at each other. I feel like I feel like when a PEO is like shrieking into the wind about a prime, it's, it's just that Spider-Man meme because... I mean, the primes are the PEOs, the PEOs are the primes. So, like, there's a behavioral aspect in there, too, of, you know, when we talk about how do we change behaviors at the PEOs, right? Is that a, like, the big five, big seven, and it's some type of DID mandates in there to change those behaviors? Or is that a, I think the government, like, in the chair, you know, active duty, government, civilian needs to change? What, or do you not see a delineation between the two? That's one I always sort of toy on is, where would I actually try to put pressure on an incentive model?
0: Yeah, I think I would focus on how do we create different incentives, and the system that we have built does not incent the the right kind of market scouting and trying of innovative technology because the system doesn't feel like it's truly under threat. so the ukraine the Ukrainians, Feel a pretty, pretty existential threat, and and um, you know aren't going to sit there and and, and debate uh, the bureaucracy. They're going to find a way to try and buy the stuff that is going to save their ass today, right? And so it is, it is not an academic exercise. And I say this with full respect and love of our acquisition workforce, which I think uh, have been constrained and micromanaged in certain ways, and have grown up in certain ways. So it, you know they are great Americans. But they, they also, you know, the, what they see and how, what they've been trained on, uh, it, and the, the level of urgency, all of those kinds of things get you to a point of view where, where it's easier to give the requirements to the existing companies that they know and have grown up with and have a set of rules about how to interact with rather than, than new entrants that may, uh, provide a, a different solution. A lower cost solution, a solution that ultimately may scale in a very different way. It's interesting when you talk about
1: sort of the the existential nature, or the the existentialism sort of innovation, right? And that that perceived threat, that perceived sort of like existential threat vulnerability, drives speed and sort of a, a risk threshold. You know, I this to to yes and sort of on the acquisition workforce. I think it's the operational side too, right? Like, I think the part of the challenge is we've got you know, senior, mid to senior leaders now who cut their teeth in a relatively uncontested ground war for 20 years where I don't really think any of the domains were contested. Like, yes, we got a bunch of gunfights. Yes, we did a bunch of great stuff. So I'm not taking anything away. I just, we were not having to figure out how to like pass data. And there was really no repercussion if it didn't pass data. Like half the fobs didn't have internet. So nobody knew what was going on. And we sort of did all right. So how does that change and how do we, or what does sort of a realization of a threat look like in the department where instead of just the talk on sort of near peer and, you know, the next sort of, and I know people yell about like a hot war in China, but what, what changes the behavior? Does that come from Congress? And is that some of the stuff we're seeing now where like the authorizers and appropriators are, are somewhat on the same page. I wish Hackt and Sact were closer on the Diu stuff.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I I am always a fan of of um, bottom up innovation rather than top down innovation. So as much as I like to talk policy and about what Congress ought to do, blah, you know, de blah, you know, I I think highlighting promising innovations that are coming up in in the uh, so I'll, I'll point to two of them uh, that I'm aware of, and I'm sure there's. There's others. But the Hanscom, uh, the digital PEO run by Steve Wirt, they've got a program called Banshee. Banshee is a week-long training program for not only Hanscom, but they've pulled in a couple other Air Force PEOs. So they do 20 or 30 mid-career uniformed and civilian acquisition Air Force professionals. And they spend time uh, getting to know the startup and uh, scale-up ecosystem you know visiting MIT, kind of uh, um talking to venture capitalists. And I think that that week, and I'm being self-serving to say I, I, I spend an hour kind of talking to that uh, particular group. but I think it's a it's a very useful exercise for them to to better understand the innovation ecosystem outside of the traditional defense industrial base. And just as one one quick story, uh, I was giving a a, a talk because they invite me in every year. And I was explaining venture capital and a guy raised his hand. And he's like, I don't get it. He's like, you're telling me you guys are, you know, as an industry putting out, you know, north of a hundred billion dollars a year into these companies. And roughly half of them are software or software based uh, because I was including biotech and other things in my statistics. And he's like, I said, yeah. And he's like, well, then why don't we just take whatever you guys are doing and give those uh, as requirements to the prime? Uh, and initially i was like well that's a rock shit stupid question but then the more that i thought about it it's actually quite profound for a gentleman who grew up in a system where that was the only way to actually get anything done and sure. you know he he knows his constraints far better than me and it's very judgy of me to be like why don't you do this differently but actually the constraints and system uh, and training and all those things that he has grown up in that was actually the most logical interpretation of a venture capitalist coming in and talking uh, about this. And so it led to a really great conversation uh, about talent density in startups, about product velocity and, and how the product gets better every quarter or sometimes every week, right? The the rapid customer feedback, the, you know, it's just a whole series of, of things. And so I like Banshee, but that's, you know, one week training for a couple of PEOs inside of the Air Force. I think with DAU and with other, other initiatives like that, we could do all kinds of uh, a really great training about the innovation ecosystem. The other thing, a little bit more recent, I was down in in Tampa visiting SoCOM recently, and I spent some time with the Joint Acquisition Task Force, and that's a forty person group uh, that has one third operators, one third technologists, and one third acquisition professionals. And what's interesting, you know, DoD loves to throw around the cross functional team CFT. You know, that, that concept a lot, but here's an example uh, of it really working where they were rapidly trying and buying uh, a lot of commercial technology and they're focused on a particular program, the the hyper enabled operator. But like, uh, um, it, it was a good example of actually doing something smaller with fewer people. And then, you know, because they have the, they have the Navy SEAL right there. They have the technologist right there as a Fed. Right. And then they have the acquisition professional who knows how to actually move the money and, and move the contract. And if you put them all in the same room and they're all talking to each other rather than you know distributed across the country in very different places and, and, and cultures and so forth. So I think though that kind of concentration of, of function uh has great promise. Yeah, it's
1: funny. Um one of the one of the things I think we see a lot we distributed company. So we've got folks all over, everybody working, you know, high velocity. And we focus on sort of bringing folks together every couple months. Sometimes just at like a team or sort of functional level, you know, multiple times a year at a company, the amount of progress you see from like action to implementation, when you can get folks in a room for a few days is unbelievable. And I say that from the comfort of my own home while I'm working here, right? Like we're, Didn't have to get dressed up and go into an office. Pretty great. Um, But I am continually reminded that while sort of all of the different communication tools and information sharing tools I have and all of the computers we're all carrying in our pockets, so much of this sort of next technological original, next tech fight is going to be done by getting people together and getting them focused on just wicked problems and then figuring out how to enable them. Um it's not a cry against like word from home. It's just a reminder to anybody out there that's like running distributed teams. find ways to get them in the room together. And there's just goodness there,
0: yep. Uh, there's 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 a lot of value to remote work. You can tap a, a workforce, and uh, um I think there's a lot of gender equity and other other important issues. Uh, but getting people together in person just just has a, a magic to it that's really hard to. To replicate, so um, I was I was really heartened to see this particular task force kind of the way that they were thinking about the different disciplines of, uh, and they have they have the customer you know the operator in the room right. So this wasn't like oh well we got to go see what the customer thinks or what the operator thinks It's like that that person was empowered to to speak for other Navy SEALs uh, about what they actually needed and whether you know something would you know add too much weight to their kit or something like that. And so I thought, you know, I'm a big fan of making sure that the customer or the operator is, is, is always represented in whatever you're doing. Absolutely.
1: Well, it's been awesome. We're going to go uh, last structured question here. We've got a bunch of interesting places though, with this on current state of the market expectations, sort of on operating teams at that startup big sort of bucket DOD, kind of congressional, defense prime policy, and then back down to just that sort of tactical edge of, you know, get as close as humanly possible to your customer, be curious, build that empathy, and then, you know, get solutions moving with velocity. Um, So for the last question, we're going to do sort of king for a day here, Uh, recognizing we just traversed like a tremendous amount of (laughs) landscape. Nick, you're king for a day, you can snap your fingers, change the thing, it could be policy, it could be an operational reality, it could be an org structure, it could be anything. And you can change it in a way that's gonna work the way you intended to, right? You know, looking at sort of this national security tech kind of private capital landscape, what do you change and why? Two things. Uh, one is more- I like that from- you just broke the construct right out of the gate. What's the one uh, thing? You're, one you're thing is friends, <laughs>
0: Tyler. You're like, one thing, One thing, goddammit. So uh, two things. They are programmatic buying and reduction of the administrative crud. So programmatic buying is, hey, let's actually force the PEOs to buy uh, commercial tech. And I'm not a huge fan of like, hey, it's got to be a quota of 10% or you've got to make sure you've looked at commercial tech. But we've got to figure out a way that says that, that, uh, especially in autonomy and cyber and AI, In things where there is just a robust set of, of investments by venture capitalists in, in new, uh, commercial tech. How do we force the, the look and the actual adoption of commercial tech? Now, of course, it's got to win on its own merits, but you got to make sure that, that they are actually looking and understanding at that. So more programmatic buying would be one. And the other would be, you know, an all out war on the administrative crud. Uh, so you know, it, it is the Fed ramp to the IL five to the FCL to the ITAR to the you know just p- pick your now CMMC. Like we keep adding additional security accreditation compliance regimes on top of each other, and you know, it's the, the old line about the checkers checking the checkers checking the checkers kind of thing. And we just have this administrative uh, friction, this crud that. You know, if you're if you're a prime, uh, and I have some like good friends working primes, but you know, if you have a big if you have a big uh, capture team, you know, putting a half dozen people or a dozen people on all of these compliance regimes, that's no big deal. If you are a startup or a scale up in defense tech, like that, is a real uh, expense, and sometimes a disqualifier.
1: I uh, I like that. I think I just saw the first campaign slogan right for for Nick Sinai, for DoD. So <laughs> right, get a little sec def sec dep run going in here. But I mean, it's true. You it's that just becomes a massive barrier to entry. And then if you take into account once you make it through all those barriers, you haven't even won yet. Now you're dealing with that PEO who's not a great buyer. Who there's all these other barriers to get in there, um, and it becomes a, a pretty pretty material negative incentive. Uh, or disincentive for organizations even thinking about bringing their tech into the in defense,
0: who is responsible for reducing the administrative state, the bureaucracy inside of DoD? And no, no, one, no one owns this, and what we do, well-meaning think tanks, and I'm, you know I'm part of a couple of them and et cetera, is we suggest a bunch of policy reforms, but they're usually adding things. And we actually need to subtract things. Hondo Gertz, who I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners know, speaks about this brilliantly, right? Of like, we actually have to reduce. And so all the, that well-meaning, but paper-based and kind of legacy bureaucratic friction, I think is doing a disservice to the nation about being able to actually try by and scale the kinds of capabilities that will be important for a 21st century uh, fight or hopefully uh, deterring it.
1: Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree. You know, more checklists are not going to let us move faster. So, <laughs> well, Nick, I want to keep us on schedule here. I am tremendously grateful. I have a bunch of fun, and I learn every single time you and I talk. So, thank you for being generous as always with your time here, and generous with your time across the community. I was just going to say it. Great book. We were fortunate at Second Front. Uh, Nick came and gave us with co-author who will be on a different podcast episode as well. Gave us an unbelievable book talk, walk through sort of breaking down a lot of the different barriers in bureaucracy. But Nick, like I said, everything you're doing for the community, if you guys uh, you guys can do it, we'll put a link out here somewhere. I'll figure out how to do it. Link to the book as well. So uh, see if we can drive some more there, but go pick up a copy. And Nick,
0: thanks again, brother. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun, Tyler. Thanks for listening.
1: Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird.